Brock here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Euroclosure is coming up in Bratislava, Slovakia from October 25th and 26th. Euroclosure offers a great mix of experienced closures and new adopters, and everyone can find something to suit their needs. Visit euroclosure.org to find out more, register, or sign up for their mailing list. The 2016 edition of Scala IO is coming up. This year's edition will take place in Lyon, France on the 27th and 28th of October. Scala IO is a nonprofit, community-driven conference with a strong sharing spirit. With five different tracks, any functional geek will find something interesting, from beginner to advanced user. General function and programming subjects and other languages will be present as well. Visit Scala.io for more information and to register. Codemesh is coming up again, taking place the 3rd and 4th of November, with tutorials on the 2nd of November. A new keynote has been announced, Connor Brape Gride and Space Monads. Connor joins the other keynotes of Joe Armstrong interviewing Alan Kay, as well as Joe Armstrong and Sam Aaron perform their distributed jamming with Sonic Pi and Erlang. Other speakers include Sophie Wilson, who designed the instruction set of the ARM processor, which became the de facto model used in the 21st century smartphones, PureScript creator Phil Freeman, Professor Dan Friedman of The Little Schemer and Essentials of Programming Languages fame, and many, many more. They are running the early bird rate until the end of Thursday, October 13th of 2016. That's this week if you're listening when this episode comes out. If you book before then, the savings is £150 plus VAT. Visit codemesh.io to register and get a 10% discount on the conference when you use the code FUNCTIONALGEEKERY10. Wave is coming up on the 25th and 26th of November in Donks, Poland. With keynote speaker Roland Kuhn, one day of workshops, and three presentation packages, Scala Wave is created to build the network of Scala enthusiasts and experts in the area of the Baltic Sea region and beyond. Visit www.scalawave.io to find out more and to sign up for their newsletter for updates. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event this December. The unconference brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked into the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. The 2016 Closure Cons will be taking place in Austin, Texas on December 1st through the 3rd. Closure Cons is the original conference for Closure and its community. Founded in 2010, the conference is the premier place for developers from all around the world to gather and learn about what is happening with the language, in the community, and within organizations using Closure. Visit 2016.closure-cons.org for more information and to register. Lambda Days will be taking place on the 9th and 10th of February of 2017. Lambda Days is a one-of-kind experience in the functional world. The never-failing explosion of enthusiasm and talent is what gets them motivated to explore the amazing community and all of its potential. To Lambda Days, Scala, Erlang, Haskell, Elixir, F-Sharp, Lisp, Clojure, and many other emerging technologies are more than just languages. They are new perspectives on how to understand and tackle challenges of everyday work. The call for talks is open until January 1st, 2017, and make sure to keep an eye out on their site for when registration opens. Visit www.lambdadays.org to submit your talk and to keep updated as information becomes available. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guest at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Bartosz Maluski. Bartosz, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? So I started as a mathematician, then I switched to physics. I got a PhD in, in physics, and then I started programming, and now I'm working on category theory. So I had like so many different careers in my life, but I think I finally discovered what I really like, and that's category theory. And especially I like teaching people category theory and talking about category theory. <laughs> so that's what I do right now. And that's one of the big things that put you on my radar was seeing a lot of people on Twitter start referencing some of your YouTube videos about, wow, saw a really great video and instruction course on this one subtopic of category theory. And you've been doing this for a little while now. 
and you put on these courses. You put them out on YouTube as well because they're live courses, but you get them recorded. And then you go on and just teach people category theory. So what transitioned you into getting exposed from category with that math background to physics to software? Because I know you've also done a bunch of different languages looking at your site and looking at your profile. You've got a pretty broad variety of stuff before you even got into category theory. So what was that journey like? And I guess what about category theory appeal to you and solve certain pain points? Well, I got into category theory from programming. So when I started programming, I just learned C in the beginning, you know, so that was a long time ago. And then I discovered object-oriented programming and I got into C++. And I was a C++ programmer for a long time. And actually, I worked at Microsoft and we were building software in C++. And after I quit Microsoft, I even wrote a book on C++ and object-oriented programming. So what fascinated me in programming was how do you structure your program? Why is some style of programming better than another? When I worked with programmers, we often had these conversations, you know, like about the quality of code, like this code is elegant, this code is not, this is ugly code, you have to rewrite this. And they would say, you know, why should I rewrite this if it works, right? So these kind of conversations about what code should look like, really, you know, why do we care about whether this is elegant or not elegant? And this sort of tendency towards elegance that actually sort of comes from mathematics. In mathematics, you can have elegant theorems or elegant proofs, but there is no really definition, no no definition of elegance, right? So like if you are trying to convince somebody your code is ugly, right? They will say, so what? You can't really use this as an argument. So I started thinking about... Why do we prefer elegant code and what does it mean for code to be elegant? And it actually all boils down to very practical reasons that code that's elegant is actually much more maintainable. And why is code maintainable? Because it's easier to understand. So if you write some code and you come back to it after a year or so, you yourself have to understand what you wrote, right? And if somebody else reads your code, they have to understand it. And they have to modify it. And it better be that the modification can be done locally so that you don't have to go through this whole program and make hundreds of modifications and constantly find out that you forgot something because you cannot make local modifications. So all this thinking about what elegance means and what it means to be able to maintain code, that first of all pushed me towards object-oriented programming. And I, I really thought that object-oriented programming was like the best thing since sliced bread. And actually, you know, I mean, there is a lot to it. But then I discovered functional programming. And I discovered functional programming also through C++. I started doing like the, what is the hardest thing in C++ that you can do? Start writing templates, right? Template metaprogramming, generic programming, this kind of stuff. And this is extremely difficult in C++, right? And it's not difficult because these are difficult problems. It's extremely difficult because the syntax of C++ is so horrible. So I started reading books on, on template metaprogramming. I read Andre Alexandrescu's book and a bunch of others. And really, it was, it was hard work understanding it until I realized that all this template metaprogramming that is done at compile time, it's really a functional language because you cannot have mutation at compile time, right? So if you cannot have mutation, you are forced to do a completely different programming technique. So I started learning functional programming 
and Haskell in particular. And I realized, oh, wait a moment. In Haskell, this is just a one line of code. And I know how to translate it into C++ templates very easily. I mean, yes, after translation, this was like a 10 lines of unreadable C++ template code, but it worked. And if the code in Haskell compiled, then translating it mechanically into C++ actually produced code that compiled, and I didn't have to go through all these horrible template error messages. So in the beginning, you know, I thought, okay, so great. I have this Haskell language that I can use as my tool in order to write C++ templates. But then I thought, why not cut the middleman? Why should I go into C++? Why not just directly use Haskell? And then, of course, once you are exposed to Haskell and you suddenly see all these notions of, of things like functors, monads, and you want to understand uh, what a functor is, what a monad is, and everybody says, well, it's, uh, that's something from category theory. So that pushed me into category theory. And I started reading up on category theory, and then I found out that it's an almost impossible task for a mere mortal I started reading categories for the working mathematician by Maclean, and I spent, you know, maybe a few weeks reading a few, the few first sentences of this book. <laughs> it's like, what the heck is this? You know, and I did have some training in, in mathematics before. I mean, I I went to a mathematical high school. And of course, as a theoretical physicist, I had to learn things like groups, Lie groups, fiber bundles, all this mathematics, you know, Hilbert spaces. So I, I had the mathematical background. And yet, reading these books seemed extremely difficult. And I realized that what mathematicians do is they just construct this uh, category theory using examples, right? And what kind of examples can they use? Well, they use examples that they know. And they know a bunch of examples from mathematical theories, right? And these are obscure mathematical theories. Well, not for mathematicians, but, you know, like topology. Okay, what does an average person know about topology or algebra, some very abstract algebra? And how can you learn something if you don't understand examples? So I started digging into it and started reading Haskell examples, the libraries, actually. Edward Kmet is actually the person who like, pushed a lot of category theory into Haskell. And he really understands, he digs category theory. And he does it by reading a mathematical paper and then immediately writing code in Haskell. So he provided all these examples of, of Haskell code. So now the question was, can I explain category theory not using the traditional examples from math, but using examples from programming. And it turns out that once you start using the right examples for your audience, they start understanding this stuff. It's not that hard. Category theory is considered like this most abstract part of mathematics, the hardest thing. But really, the concepts in category theory are pretty obvious. It's just that they are so abstract. If you have no examples of it, you don't understand why. Why would you define a category like this? Why would you define a functor like this? But once you get examples from programming, it sort of falls into place. You start understanding this stuff. And so you start understanding categories from these examples. It's one of those things, it's obvious once you have a good example of how something works. Because other than that, it's all jargon, I would assume. 
Yeah. Which seems to be the same for any other part of software development. If you're talking to a non-techie and trying to explain something to them. And once it clicks, what was the click? You talk about clarity and understanding and some of that isolation stuff on why code is elegant. And that reminded me of the 3 a.m. test of your page because the software is broken in prod and you've got to find a fix at 3 a.m. after you've been woken up and Mm -hmm. you have to have enough coherence to actually understand the problem and get it fixed. But you go into category because of that. And then all of a sudden you find examples that relate it back to something you start to understand. What became the click and the enlightenment once you actually had some examples? And I think we'll get into some of those examples in a little bit, but what was your epiphany once you started being able to understand what category theory was? Well, so when you're programming, you have to create these levels of abstraction. You cannot just write everything as one big function. You want to split your problem into smaller problems. So this is how we as programmers We do this without thinking, really. You know, it's like we approach a big, complex problem. We are dealing with complexity all the time. We approach it by chopping it into smaller problems, always. And then we solve each of these sub-problems separately. And if necessary, we do recursion. We split these smaller problems into yet smaller problems. And so on, this sort of fractal nature of programming. Until you split into such tiny problems that you have solutions for them in code or in a library, and then you start combining them. You start composing. So you decompose your problem into smaller problems, solve them, and then you recompose the solutions to have the solution to your bigger problem. And this process of decomposing and recomposing is based on the idea of composition. And once I realized that category theory can be simplified to just two things, composition and identity, then I understood that category theory is like the best conceptual tool to understand programming. Because it's all about structure. Structure is about decomposing and recomposing stuff. So category theory gives you this mental tool to understand what it means to decompose a problem and to recompose it. And if you're writing a library, you have to ask yourself the question, is the API that I provide for this library Is it composable? For instance, is the user who's using my library, will he or she be able to combine different elements of the library into something bigger? Will they be able to plug in their code into it? Maybe some kind of callbacks, maybe different types of arguments. Will they be able to extend it? And then will they be able to compose library code with their own code? plug the library code into their code and plug their code into the library code and so on. So this really hit me when I was thinking about the problem of futures in C++, the future library that was added to C++. I was looking at it and I saw this as an example of how badly you can design an API if you don't think about this composability. And this is a place where actually category theory, well, even if you don't know category theory, but you just know a little bit of Haskell. And if you know what a monad is, you suddenly discover that futures are monads. And monad is just about how to compose stuff, how to compose non-trivial functions, right? So I wrote this blog about how badly futures were designed, and I explained how they should have been designed in order to make them composable. And it was sort of obvious once you know about composability, about category theory, about monads. They were designed in such a way that you had a bunch of futures 
And if you wanted to combine them in any way, you would have to block waiting for the threads to finish their job. And only once they finished, you could combine the results and start maybe a new thread, which would produce another future and so on. There was no way of combining them in such a way as to increase parallelism. So that was the breakthrough moment for me. Okay, you cannot design a good library if you don't understand category theory, at least elements of it. And with a very cursory view and understanding of category, and it may just be I understand it without actually having seen the, like, I know the examples, but I haven't put all the pieces together to be able to associate all the names. And as you kind of said, like, you're already exposed to category theory. You may just not know it because you don't necessarily understand a monad doesn't mean you've never dealt with a monad before. You just haven't put two and two together. It gets down to, in my view, is all these different categories are just essentially interfaces, protocols, contracts, or whatnot at different levels, whether it's something like a functor or applicative. And then it just talks about taking all those different components and how you assemble those together and compose those together to make new categories? Is that roughly accurate where a monad is something that is both a functor and duplicative with that behavior? And really, when you're talking about the composability and decomposing is you're just breaking it down into the smaller other categories and then the categories are just built up of combinations of other categories combined, yes or no? (laughs) Okay. Well, when you put it this way, it sounds really, really complicated, right? The reality is that essentially you have just one category that we use in programming. That's the category of types and functions. Okay. And that's the starting point. And you have to start thinking about a program. At least uh, when you use functional programming, it's much easier to think it in this way. But in general, this is sort of hidden under a lot of noise. Is that a program really consists of functions and you build larger programs or larger functions from smaller functions by composing them. So like the basic way of structuring your program is I'm calling a function with an argument, I'm getting a result, and I'm passing this result to another function as an argument, and this function produces a result, and so on. So it's just the chaining of functions, and that's called composition. And composition of functions, or in category theory, There are more general things than functions. They are called morphisms. But in our case, in programming, these morphisms are just functions. The composition of functions, the composition is the essence of a category. And this is just one example. When you just take straightforward functions and you compose them, you build larger functions and so on. So this is how we programmers work with functions. But then where does the monad come in? When you have functions that have side effects, functions that do something, they are not mathematical functions. Like most functions that you use in C++, for instance, they have side effects. You call them multiple times and they might give you different results every time you call them. Or they modify some external state. They are not pure functions. So this was the biggest problem in functional programming is how to describe these side effects, how to describe things that are not really pure functions. And the answer is, if you have all these different kinds of impurities that you can have, and they are very different, you know, like you have functions that throw exceptions. You have functions that take input from the user. You have functions that produce output to the screen and so on. So there's so many different things. You have functions that have state, hidden state, and so on. All these very different ways of being non-pure can actually be translated into pure functions with some additional structure. And the question is, if normal programming means just composing functions to create bigger functions. How do you compose these special functions, the functions that 
have side effects or modify state and so on. How can you compose them? Because they are now not your traditional functions. And the answer is, for all these very complex ways of encoding side effects, for all of them, the answer is use a monad. A monad is a way of composing functions that have side effects, essentially. And because there is such a huge variety of side effects that you can describe this way, people have problems understanding what a monad is because they say, oh, okay, a monad is about exceptions. No, a monad is about state. No, a monad is about I.O. No, a monad is about this, that, you know. No, a monad is just about how to compose these things. It's about composition. Once you understand this, it's just a pattern for composing things. And then it's easy. There's a lot of confusion because of this. And the word monad became sort of like a cuss word that people try to avoid it. I don't know why people have no problems with the word object, like in object-oriented programming, because it's a common word. Try defining object in object-oriented programming, and you'll get into much bigger trouble than trying to define a monad in functional programming. It's just that so it's a word that's used more often than the word monad. But whatever you call it, the idea is not that hard. And that makes sense. And it's one of those realizations I've come to that people talk about, like, well, we don't want to use the term monad, or we don't want to use the term functor or applicative because it sounds scary to people and it might throw them off. But as you said, we have plenty of other jargon that we bandy about and don't even think about whether or not it's singleton or flyaway or state or strategy or pick any of the other patterns out from the Gang of Fours design patterns book or anything else. And we talk yeah. about that. Exactly. They have cute names, right? <laughs> you give them cute names and suddenly it seems like they are easier to understand. No, not really. I mean, I don't know. I mean, we could give uh, a monad a cute name. Will it make it easier, more palatable for people? I don't think so. It's, it's, it's like a monad is a monad. A functor is a functor. Why come up with cute names for them? And getting back to the question I was asking, and I think you gave a good rundown, but one, part of what I was missing was you were saying monad was a pattern of composability. And if I was understanding you correctly and what I was trying to ask as well, and I think you helped enlighten it, but just to clarify is all these categories, whether or not it's the functor, the monad, the applicative, all these other scary terms, monoids, endofunctors, co-functors, whatever it is, these are all just the patterns that you would think about, and they have specific uses of how you compose things together in the same way that going back to the design patterns book has a bunch of different patterns about composing things together. And that's all really a category is, is just the patterns of how you do the composition? Yes, essentially, that's it. These are the patterns for composing things. Yeah. I mean, everything in category theory is, is about composition and identity. That's all there is. And when you're studying these patterns from the Gang of Four book, they are very specific. This is why there are so many of these patterns. And I, I think by now the vocabulary of programming patterns is, is huge. That's because they are very specific. There is a pattern for specific problems. There are tiny problems that can be solved with this pattern. So you have like five different examples of a problem and you form a pattern for them. Well, these patterns that we use in category theory, they are much more general. They are much more high-level patterns. And this, this is what makes them maybe harder to understand and learn because they are not as specific, but also they are applicable to a much larger variety of problems. That's their strength. And you just mentioned something that seems very interesting to me, and you, I think you put on why it's difficult, is the fact that these are much higher, these are much more generic. So when someone starts to understand a pattern in 
OO or procedural programming and they say, okay, well, this is a for loop or this is a while loop even if you get down to very basics. That thing is pretty concrete and looks pretty much the same no matter what. But a for loop is different than a while loop. You get a little bit of an abstraction of a loop. But if you understand strategy or understand a singleton, you can kind of look at that and know what that is. Whereas I think tying back to what you talked about with monads is, is that pattern for state? And does the argument as you start teaching these courses become, no, 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 this is a monad. No, this is a monad. No. Well, yes, they're all monads, but they're not about any one thing of side effects or exceptions or whatnot. Is it because that people start to understand a monad in the terms of holding state or dealing with IO or dealing with exceptions? And then they understand what a monad is, but in that specific example, so when someone comes back and says, oh, it's also about exceptions, the confusion becomes real then because, well, I thought I knew what a monad was, but now you're telling me I don't actually understand what it is. And that's where the complexity comes in? Well, I think the complexity comes in because we are so used to imperative style of programming where we actually split things into very small steps. So, for instance, for an imperative programmer, this idea of composing functions is not immediately obvious. Function composition in an imperative language looks more like more or less like this. Int x equals f of y. Something, something, something. And maybe string s equals g of x. And you already forgot that this x was obtained by calling the function f previously. So you don't really see this composition of two functions was obscured by creating these temporary variables to begin with. I mean, you created the variable x just to hold the result of one function, and then you pass this x to another function. The process of naming this variable was just a side effect of the way we do imperative programming. So this idea that we are composing functions, that we are passing results of one function as arguments to another function, that's, that's so deeply hidden that it's almost invisible. And then there's a lot of glue code in between function calls that do little things. This glue code can also be abstracted into functions, and then you end up with just composing functions. And I'm not saying that code written as a composition of functions is the most readable code. Sometimes it's not. So sometimes it's really better to give names to your temporary variables. It's good because you can give them meaningful names and that they sort of serve as comments in your code because they have additional names. They specify what is the semantics of what I'm doing. But once you know functional programming, you start looking at imperative code differently and you see that it is really about function composition. And it could be that composing functions in this imperative style that is very much more verbose is actually easier to understand. As long as you don't lose this idea that you are actually composing functions. So if you take imperative code, you can translate it into functional code by just doing function composition. And function composition, you know, like in C++, there isn't even a library function called compose. There is no higher order function that takes two functions and produces a new function that's a composition of these two. There isn't even a function like this. So this just shows you how far away imperative programming is from this idea of composing functions. Whereas in Haskell, if you want to compose two functions, you just put a period, a dot between functions. That's an operator of composition. So you see composition in Haskell code, you won't see it in C++ code. And in Haskell code, if you say, okay, now I want my functions to actually do some additional stuff, for instance, exceptions or state or so on, I will replace this dot with something else. 
And in fact, the replacement for the dot when you go into a monadic composition is called a fish operator. It's like less than equal less than, and that replaces the dot. So once you understand that you are doing function composition, you have two things. You have functions and you have composition. And you can modify your functions or you can modify the way you compose them. And this tweaking the way functions are composed is done through a monad or through applicative. That's an even simpler way of doing this. But the tweaking of composition, that's why people sometimes say that the monad is an overloading of the semicolon. Like if you want to explain it to an imperative programmer, a semicolon is something that's between functions and composition is also something that's in between functions. You just overload it. You say, after you call this function and before you call the next function, do this additional stuff. And that's where the mo- what, what the monad is. That's interesting to think about because I'm still one of those who, every time I think I understand the concept of a monad and am tested by trying to explain it, I find out I still don't understand it enough because, because I can't explain it. And so that's some more interesting fuel to think about, about how it's the specialization of overloading composition, because I've kind of seen stuff similar to it where you're talking about, I guess it's called the fish operator. I never knew how you actually named that, but where you take the different kind of operator and substitute composition, and now you've got something else. And that becomes something interesting to think about for me and will give me some new ways to go about thinking about it. But I want to get into some of your courseware stuff that you do. So you're taking all these ideas, you've put together these courses, you've got them out on video. When you do these courses, how have you found the people, I guess your audience attending the courses? What backgrounds are they coming from? Are they coming from something that is completely imperative and you're having to break their minds and teach him about this and use that metaphor of it's like a semicolon, but overloaded? Or are these people who kind of have some background in functional programming and understand functional programming? So they understand function composition? Or are these people that are have started dipping their toes into the water of category theory, but are coming around? What have you found the audience? And is there any different kind of approach that you take or different insights that you found that helped trigger this for the different levels? Well, so the audience is is from um, different backgrounds, but but most of them are programmers and in their day jobs, they do imperative programming mostly. I think most of them are interested in functional programming enough to actually try to read Haskell code and maybe they tried to learn it at some point. Some of them actually learned a little of Haskell or maybe F-sharp. They have different backgrounds, but what's common is that they have the interest in functional programming in general. Some of them tried category theory and failed, like most people who are not career mathematicians, they usually fail trying to work out mathematical books because they are written in such a style that's very difficult to approach. But given enough examples in programming, these concepts are not as hard as one might think. And some of these concepts are surprisingly simple. Like I can explain the definition of category. I I think I would be able to explain it to a toddler. (laughs) Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not much. A lot of these concepts are, if you approach it the right way, they really are extremely intuitive because they describe the way we think about things. So it's a mathematical formulation of a lot of intuitions that we have when we are studying this universe. And once you grab this idea, things just start falling into place. And as far as Haskell goes, 
I usually try to explain Haskell syntax, and most of Haskell syntax is pretty intuitive. So it's like when I'm saying, okay, function from type A to type B is, you know, you put an arrow from A to B, you know, that's the kind of notation that becomes immediately obvious. Like if you want to declare a function from A to B in C++, you would have to write template class A, class B, F, A, F of B, and so on, right? Whereas in Haskell, this is much simpler. So I think a lot of people just learn Haskell on the fly while I'm teaching. I'm just explaining things like, here's a class, here's an instance. It's a big difference between learning a language passively and actively. All you need is passive knowledge of Haskell to understand categories here. You just, you just have to be able to read these examples and understand them. You don't have to write your own code. Writing your own code in Haskell is much harder. Even for me, it's hard. I mean, I'm, I'm not really a proficient Haskell programmer, but I like reading code in Haskell. And the reason I was asking about the audience and how you found it and what kind of stuff that they click on or not was in coordinating this call, you mentioned that you've got this interest now in trying to teach category theory to artists and you want to try and take a shot at that. And as you described, is it's something that we as humans kind of have been taught to naturally think in. And it's something we're familiar with without realizing we're familiar with it. And so if you're looking at trying to take this to other domains outside of what you would think as a math or programming background, what are some of the things that lead you to have found that the idea of taking it to artists or some other category, I'm not sure that the pun is intended, but maybe that, but I'm sure it works, <laughs> it, of careers and trains of thought. Well, okay. So first of all, category theory itself is a generalization or is an abstraction that covers a lot of mathematical theories. It was created as sort of like a discovering structure in various mathematical theories. It turns out that a lot of mathematical theories that were developed separately, you know, whether it's geometry, number theory, algebra, topology, calculus, Hilbert spaces, they all have at some level similar structure. And mathematicians love doing abstract thinking. So they thought, you know, how can we abstract this structure from all these theories. And they, they were just like approaching one theory after another, extracting the structure and like, let's express this thing in a slightly different language. So category theory is like a universal language to formulate other particular theories. You might think of particular theories like geometry or, or set theory as sort of being like machine language, like being assembly language. They are very low level, each use very specific instruction set, sort of, right, <laughs> to describe the stuff that they describe. And category theory is like, let's find a higher level language and just express all these theories, instead of expressing each of them in a different machine language, let's express them in one higher level language. And then it turned out that not only you can find similarities between mathematical theories, but you can even find similarities between mathematical theories and programming. There is this famous Curry-Howard isomorphism, which says that logic, which is a branch of mathematics, is totally isomorphic to type theory, which is sort of, well, it's also a branch of mathematics, but this is something that we use in programming. When we create a type system for a language, we are using type theory. So there are these two completely different human activities. One is programming, one is doing logic, and it turns out that they are isomorphic. You take a concept from logic, 
you can translate it almost mechanically into a concept in programming and vice versa. You, can, you write a program in some programming language and you can say, well, actually, this is a proof of a particular theorem in logic. So this is like an amazing thing. And I had this experience not long ago. I, I was invited to a conference in Poland and I was giving a keynote. And I thought, okay, I'm going to prepare a talk about Curry-Howard isomorphism because that was like my interest back then. I really wanted to talk about this and show, show these parallels between logic and programming. And I had my slides and everything. And I, a week before the conference, I found out that uh, Phil Wadler was also invited to this conference and he was giving the opening keynote. I was giving the closing keynote. He was giving the opening keynote. And he was talking about the Curry-Howard isomorphism. So panic, you know, <laughs> not much time. I contacted Philip and then talked to him about what he was covering in his talk and decided I'm going to rewrite, quickly rewrite my talk, not to repeat the same stuff. So I extended it to the Curry-Howard-Lambic isomorphism. That's the third leg of this isomorphism which says that not only logic and type theory and lambda calculus, but also category theory, and in particular, this Cartesian closed categories, that they are all the same thing. They are just three different languages to describe the same reality. So that was nice. I, it kind of forced me to, to rethink these things. And then I went to uh, Philip's talk and he kind of had a philosophical approach to it. And being partly mathematician, most mathematicians are Platonists. So he really framed this Curry-Howard isomorphism in terms of we are actually discovering some hidden truth behind logic and type theory. Like there is really some existence in our universe that these things exist outside of our minds and we are just discovering them. And, you know, I'm, I'm a physicist, so I understand what discovering means, right? We do experiments, we throw a bunch of protons against antiprotons and see what comes out. These are experiments and this is actually studying how the universe is built. But mathematicians don't do that. They don't do experiments, right? They don't throw protons against antiprotons. What they do is they sit down with a pencil and paper. So how come they are discovering something? This is sort of more of a religious approach than philosophical. So I am not a Platonist. And it made me think, coming back from the programming background, I understand that the way we structure our programs is not because the machines understand higher level languages. No, the machines would be completely happy if we wrote all our programs in machine language. They have no problem understanding this. They actually have problem understanding higher level language. So we have compilers. We have this all this machinery to translate from our language, from higher level language to machine language because... There is this mismatch between how we think and how machines operate. So really, all these higher level languages are there because of the limitations of the human mind. And I think the same thing is in every other area of science. We are trying to understand some phenomena in this universe using our brains. And our brains have these limitations. And it turns out that there are certain things that are easier for us to understand. There are other things that are harder for us to understand. What are the things that are easier to understand? Well, the things that can be decomposed into simpler laws. Like we have laws of physics means they are simpler laws and we can compose complex behaviors using these simpler laws. So there is this you have to understand that our brains are not all-powerful computers, or maybe they are computers, but not all-powerful. But we are trying to understand a universe that maybe does not really have the structure to be understood. 
So we think that we are studying the universe, we are discovering structure in the universe, but maybe we are just imposing this structure on the universe because that's the only way we can understand stuff. We have to be able to decompose larger problems into smaller problems and then recompose them. And then I thought, maybe mathematics is the same. Maybe mathematics is not really about discovering the laws of mathematics. It's about studying how our brains work, how our minds are able to process this universe. So we are really imposing these laws on the universe. And mathematics is just a way of studying our minds rather than an objective reality. And once you realize that category theory being the highest abstraction in mathematics is really about what kind of structure is understandable to us humans, then you ask yourself the question, is that only applicable to mathematics? Well, maybe it's also applicable to physics. And maybe it's also applicable to music or painting or visual arts or to literature because these are all activities of human mind. And if category theory is the study of human mind, then everything must follow the laws of category theory. So my thinking right now, my kind of goal is, would it be possible to take category theory and explain it instead of using mathematical examples like mathematicians do or programming examples like what I'm doing right now? Well, take examples from life or take examples from art and try to explain it to people who are not programmers and not mathematicians. Because everybody is interested in how human mind works. What does it mean to understand this world? So that's, wow. that's my project now. <laughs> wow, there's a lot to unpack there. And just at a preliminary glance and cursory thought of that, I can start to see how that translation might actually work in the way you're describing it of knowing that even some of the artistic side, we have tried to apply math to it, whether or not that's understanding the harmonics of music or the Fibonacci and golden ratios and art or rule of thirds and trying to take some of this stuff or color theory or even how you break down and diagram sentences into very rote mechanics of how something works. And if you're going with that, that does seem very interesting to see how that actually translates and applies and would love to get you back on to expound on that once you've gotten a chance to dig back in and play with that idea and vet it out some. At this point, though, I think we're close to time. So is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to make sure we at least raise to the audience's attention? whether that's more insights or just anything we didn't cover that you think we should just put on people's radar so they can go <laughs> start looking at and get into more on their own or maybe topics for further exploration if we get you back on for or whenever I can get you back on to dig into some of these other topics. Maybe we'll dig into those as well. Is there anything that we want to bring up and make mention to before we start wrapping up the call? Well, okay. The one thing, my category theory talks, I'm covering some difficult topics, right? And giving examples from programming and giving examples from math and so on. But from time to time, I like to give a little bit of philosophy and just like wave my hands and talk about the universe and how we humans try to understand the universe and so on. And I think there are parts of my um, presentations that are 
that actually anybody could watch. And in particular, I think my first talk, my introductory talk to Gabegoros here, where I talk about our ancestors uh, hunting bison and mammoths and like an, <laughs> as an introduction to category theory. I think that's something that a lot of people would find, if not interesting, then at least uh, entertaining. And I think that's, that would be a good starting point for a lot of people to get into category theory from completely different backgrounds. I mean, you don't have to be a programmer and you don't have to be a mathematician to get into this stuff. And I think that's, that's really worth studying. And then as we close out this episode, is there anything else you want to plug? I know you're doing courses. I don't know if you've got your next round roughly scheduled or when people might be looking out for it. If you want to give people a chance to plug the upcoming one, even though you've got one in progress. Any other projects or things you want to make sure people know about that you're tangentially involved in or just other recommendations in general that you want the audience to know about that you want to leave the audience with? Well, I'm not really making plans for future. So I just go wherever I find interesting things to do. <laughs> so I can't really recommend. I don't have specific plans. I think my general direction is continue with category theory and just expand to other audiences. That's my the general plan for the foreseeable future. I can understand that. The other thing is you've talked about some of the conference presentations. Are there any upcoming conferences that you're going to be going to that people can find you at? And if they're going to be going, maybe go make sure that they hit one of your talks or try and find you in the hallway or something? No, I don't have anything scheduled yet, so I don't know. Okay. And then do you have a call to action for the audience? So they've listened to this episode. They've gotten a rundown. They've gotten your overview of category theory at the high and then category theory a little bit philosophically at the end. Is there anything you have a call to action for the listeners, whether it's pertinent to that or just any other thing you want people to take away from this episode? Well, I, I get a lot of questions from people asking about how useful it is for me as a programmer to learn category theory. And I don't know if, if there is a direct need for category theory in everyday programming. Like most people spend, you know, eight hours a day just writing code and debugging it, and they don't really have time to learn category theory. Will it be immediately applicable to their everyday activities? I don't know. But I think that getting this higher level view, this perspective helps you, drives you towards better solutions. That it is mind opening. So it's just like you go to a gym and, and you exercise. It's not an activity that actually produces something. But eventually your body feels better and your mind feels better. And you may be able to accomplish new things in your life. So I think the same is true about category theory. It just opens up your mind and makes you a better programmer because your mind is open. It changes the way you think. And you never know when this will become useful. Maybe you won't even notice when you are using some of the ideas that came to your mind through category theory. It just happens. And that sounds like a great call to action for the listeners. And just great advice in general is keeping that mind open, learning new things, because you never know when or even how you're going to be able to make use of that. So where can people find you online if they would like to follow you? You've got your videos out on YouTube. What are the other places that people can find out and keep up to date with what's going on? I always post on Twitter. Twitter is like the, every time I post a video, I also post a tweet. So on, on Twitter, under just my name, Bartosz Miluski, just follow me on Twitter and you'll get all the announcements about what I'm doing. And it's not a lot of information. I'm not posting stuff about what I had for 
breakfast, you know, it's just announcement about what videos are available or what talks I gave, what blogs I published. I also have work on my blog. I mean, I haven't been working too much on my blog lately because of this category theory talks, but I, I still keep writing articles about category theory in my blog. And I'll get those linked up in the show notes so people can come back after they're listening to the episode, if it's exercising or driving in their car or wherever they may be, if they're not quite handy at the computer, so they can come back and find those easily. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belzer for the logo. And thank you once again, Bartosz, for taking your time to join me today. It was very enlightening, very mind-blowing, and this is definitely one of those episodes that as I go through and edit and do the show notes and listen and having the multiple listens will probably still keep providing insights in my head at this point of reinforcing some of these ideas because there seems to be a lot to unpack. And as I was following along, it seems there's a lot for me to pull out of this episode for just because I am so on the bounds of some of this category theory stuff. So I'd like to thank you for your time and taking your time to talk with me. And I hope the audience will be able to pull a lot out of this as I have a feeling I will. So thanks again for taking your time to join me today. It was insightful and a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me. And it's uh, always a pleasure. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.